All right, here we go. Chapter 7 for part 6 here. We're in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, it should be there by now. It says this. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And so, first of all, we're seeing here the king's love for the queen. As we've kind of mentioned before, that this is true love. The, the king definitely loves her. And as a picture of what we're seeing, that King Ahasuerus is a picture of God. Queen Esther is a picture of the church in Israel. There's no question about the love here. There is a very special relationship. Now, I know in our culture today, it's very hard for us to understand that, you know, kind of trying to put ourselves in their shoes with this kind of thing. But um, I believe that this is a very special relationship. And we have that with God. And I think even in our culture today, we have a hard time understanding how God can love us the way he loves us and the special relationship we have with him. But Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7 says this, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? That's the relationship that we have with God. We are his special possession, a treasured possession, Scripture calls it. We don't deserve that, but we have it because of his love for us. And that's why we read in Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It doesn't make sense to us. I don't think it ever can, at least not in my mind, why he would love me when we are so disobedient, so flesh-filled, so... Um, broken in so many ways, and yet he says, you are special. I love you, and enough to, to give his son. Well, John fourteen thirteen is also interesting in the context of what we see. He's saying, what do you want? I'll give it to you. That's what the king is saying. That's what God has told us. He says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. John 14, 13 there. Now, this can be taken out of context and is many times in churches today in a name it, claim it kind of theology. Hey, you know, you deserve it. God loves you because you're a Christian. And so because you're a Christian, God wants to bless you with everything that you ask him for. I mean, look at this verse. Well, that is, that's not the context of what's talking about here. We can see the same type of things in, in uh, is it Jeremiah, where he talks about, I know the plans that I have for you. Okay, plans for you to prosper. That doesn't always mean money or possessions in the material sense. It can mean to prosper in the kingdom of God, to prosper with joy, knowing your Savior. But there is no question that there is an aspect of God wants to bless those who please Him. And so we have to be careful and not let that pendulum go to the name it, claim it. But also, don't let it go to this far that why, why would God do anything for me and, uh, you know, God just doesn't listen to my prayers or whatever the case might be. 
Okay, truth is kind of centered. It's balanced. We'll give you some other examples here to build on that. John 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we're getting a little bit more context here now. Not just, hey, genie, where are you? I want it. But he says, if you remain in me and my word remains in you, that means there's kind of a requirement here a little bit. There's an if. That means you might say, if you please me. Okay? If you're obedient, my word remains in you. Now let me tell you, if you're being obedient so that you can win the lottery, you're not being obedient. So again, there's motives, there's the heart that's there. Ultimately, it's if my word is in you, if you love me, if I have a relationship with you, and you have a relationship with me, then yes, it does please God. But if you are the one that's out there, you know, trying to be good enough to earn anything, even an answered prayer, you're in trouble. I, uh, in one of my presentations, I show a, or play a video or an audio clip of a professor at one of the universities in Kansas. And he's telling these kids that, you know, that he's a believer and he's, he's going to teach them evolution, but he's a Christian. But uh, how many genders are there? And he says, you know, there's five. And, I mean, he just, things that break God's word all the time. But he says, I'm a Christian. And every time I get up in the morning, I pray. I pray God to, you know, will bless me. And sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But uh, I'm not going to take the chance of not, not praying. See, that's the pendulum swung in the wrong direction right there. Yeah, the, yeah. That is not what this is talking about. We're talking about a relationship that you have with the Lord here. And that is what Esther has with King Ahasuerus, believe it or not. Like I said, I don't think we can grasp that in this culture, thinking, well, how can, you know, you be a queen and you're just kind of being summoned here and there and you can't even go in and talk to him without the scepter being extended. I mean, that's not a relationship. We, we can't grasp the culture. I don't think we're capable of grasping what, what's going on there. But, again, why will God give us whatever we ask here? Let's look at one more verse, 1 John 3, 22. And it goes on and it continues, And receive from Him anything we ask, because, there's the why answered, because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. This is New Testament. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. So, let me ask you, do you think everybody that goes to church is in Jesus? No. If they're not, yeah, what's that? Oh, I was going to say, not anymore standing in the garage makes you a car. Exactly, yep. There's a relationship, and he says, if you do what I command you to do, if you keep my commands, if you do what pleases me, that's part of it. 
That's part of a relationship. And that is why God will give whatever we ask. Because if I have a relationship with Jesus, I'm not going to be praying and asking to win the lottery. Because my heart is not going to be for the things of this world. My heart is going to be for God. And therefore, if my heart is for things of God, I believe God will give me whatever I ask. Because it's not for me, it's for the kingdom of God. And there's the, the hitch, basically. I remember when I was first going into ministry, there's just been a couple of times in my life where I have felt this verse lived it out in absolute faith. And I'm getting goosebumps right now even thinking about either that or the air conditioner is too cold. I don't know which. But um, when we went into ministry, I kind of gave you guys this testimony before a little bit. But I knew God was going to take care of it. When we got this house for $300, I knew God was going to take care of it. That it's like, what are we going to do? I, I don't know. Just wait. Wait on God. And he does. I had absolute assurance. I didn't know exactly how he was going to answer the prayer, but I knew he was going to answer the prayer. Now, most of my life, I don't live in that level of faith. I don't know why God graced me with it at that time outside of because he was gracious to me. But there are things, and I think that we often think about persecution and things that are going to come upon this world. I know God will be there for us if that comes to that point. I don't have to worry about it now. I know that he is going to give me the grace that I need at that time. And I think that's the kind of thing that's being talked about here. Things of God, not things of this flesh. Because if you have a heart for him, that's what you are going to ask for. And that is exactly what we're going to see here. As we continue, it says this, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. She wasn't asking for money, for property, for a bigger house, whatever. She was asking to spare her life. That's it. Now, keep in mind the context of what we've been talking about here. Esther is a picture of the church. King Ahasuerus is a picture of God. I don't think we're just talking about this physical life right now. We're talking about eternal life. That we should be praying the exact same thing. God, give us life. Spare my life from this flesh. For there is nothing good that lives in me. Spare me from myself. And that's just kind of like what I was saying there in worship. There isn't a time in history that we can find that is, hasn't been filled with the flesh of people. And it's like, no, I want to live because he lives. I want to have life and have that life abundantly. And that's not talking about your physical life. That's talking about the, the life of the spirit that we should be living in. 
And I see that's kind of the parallel here. Because we all have a death sentence put on us, just like Esther did. That death sentence happened right there in the garden when sin came into this world. We were born with a birth certificate. I should say we were born with a death certificate. And we all need to be praying, our life is at stake. We need Jesus, and my people need Jesus. In essence, that's what I see here. You know, Romans 5, 12 says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came upon all men. That's that death sentence. New Testament talks about it as well. So, we have our hope because of Yeshua. As he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But we have to call on him. That's what Esther had to do. She had to call. She had to go to him. Seek him out. And if you do, you will not be turned away. Was basically what happened with Esther. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So that is our hope right there. You know, a lot of people think Esther, there's, it's kind of a depressing story for the most part. But I think when we can kind of look at it through this way, that there's a lot of comfort we can find in, in this story because it is a message of God's deliverance, but it's a message of patience and letting God work. While you think that things are falling apart, while you think that, you know, you're going to die and there is no hope, God is in the background doing what he needs to do to accomplish a better purpose. And we have to be patient and wait for that. Well, verse 4, For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed. You have been too. The devil has gone after you. He roams about seeking whom he may devour. You have been sold to destruction without Christ. When you know Jesus, when you know Yeshua, the Messiah, Mashiach, then you know that he has purchased you with his blood. Otherwise, you've been sold by sin to the devil. It goes on, sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. I love that. I mean, if we were slaves, that would have been fine. But this is, this is too much. The reason I like this is because, just like that first song we sang, um, what's the title? Grace, Your Grace is Enough. Is that enough for us today in America? No, I don't think it is. I mean, it is, but I don't think we think it is. Because if all Jesus did for you was come and die on the cross so that you would live with him in an eternity, for an eternity, I should say, is that enough even if you have to go through life suffering, 
with some great disease, maybe paralyzed, maybe losing loved ones right and left, uh, whatever. Is his grace enough? That's in essence what Esther is saying here. Your grace in sparing me, that's enough. A slave losing all of that I own, none of that matters. But your grace is enough. And that's, to me, I think what God wants in us, is to be so heavenly minded that the things of this world grow strangely dim. And his grace is all that matters. You know, back in chapter 3, we saw that Haman paid 10,000 talents of silver to destroy the Jews. A talent is about 75 pounds. So 10,000 talents of silver, about 750,000 pounds of silver. That's how much Satan hates you. He's willing to pay a high price, to give it all up, just to go after you. And that's the kind of hatred Haman has for Mordecai. That's, that's a big deal. I think that's a good question for everybody to ask. Are we willing to give up a little bit of our comfort? Can I even make it more all of our comfort to be with him? if he was willing to give it all for us. And not, By, really, what, and not really what Christ is commanding us, though. I mean, we see in Luke, he's saying, give it all up. Like, give everything. Like, you're going to lose mother, sister, brother, whatever. Yeah. Job, you lose everything. Like, it's enough. I you think so. Seder meal, and it's that I think guy knew. Yeah. You know, that's been running in my head for a long time, and then it just kind of came through again, so thanks for that. But um, <laughs> just that whole thing, it's enough. Do yeah. we really think that and believe that was I think that in our minds we'd like to say that yes, but in reality I think very few of us, if any of us, really truly believe that in our heart. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to live it out. And I think by God's grace, sometimes I think God pours out that grace when we need it. But yeah, you're right. I think the Bible does tell us that's what we're supposed to do. And here in America, it's harder because I've often thought about that verse about the camel going through the eye of a needle. And I've read commentaries where they just destroy that by saying, well, the, the door, you know, an eye of a needle, it was a door of the gate and a camel, if they took off its load and got down on its knees, could fit through and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, even the disciples said, Lord... That's impossible. How can this be? And he says, yeah, with man, this is impossible. Not hard. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So that whole idea of a, a camel going through the eye of a needle is not possible outside of God miraculously doing it. And really, that's what salvation is for us. It's a miracle and it's by God's grace that we can do it, because we couldn't do it on our own. And I was talking with Ron here a week or two, probably a week ago, and I don't remember what question I asked him, 
but just the, the comforts that have been taken from them in Israel right now because of this nonsense. His answer, well, it's my lot in life. They have an attitude about that, that we all have a lot in life. If God places me here on earth to be a cripple, that's my lot in life. Be thankful and live it. Live it for the Lord. If he wants me to be a king, that's my lot in life. Be thankful and live it. And I think we all have to just, I think in America with capitalism, which I'm not against capitalism, I'm just saying that we shouldn't have that attitude of my lot in life is always up there. Not where God places us, but we've got our eyes set on somebody else's lot in life. We can always achieve that. I just like this because of that context, that she's willing, it wouldn't have been even worth going and bothering you if it was just that I was a slave. And when we look at our, and examine our prayer life, what is it made up of? Is it made up of material, physical things, or is it made up of the spiritual? Are we concerned about the salvation of the lost more than we're concerned about, you know, my next doctor's appointment, or... Uh, the, the new house that I want to buy or, you know, whether I should, you know, get this job or that job. I'm not saying we can't pray for those. I'm not letting that pendulum go all the way over one direction. What I'm saying is that where is our mindset at? Is it on the material or is it on the salvation of others and those around us? Because that's ultimately what she's saying is worth bothering the king for. Okay? So anyway... As we continue in verse 5, King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? That man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, the enemy, this vile Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I love that. I love justice, and we're about to see it. And Again, with our parallel that this is a prophetic book in the end times, this is exactly what's going to happen. You know that the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, will not come back again until something happens. Until the man of lawlessness is revealed. Thessalonians talks about that. Once the man of lawlessness is revealed, then things start to come out. Justice is going to be served. But now we have the man of lawlessness. It's coming out. It is being revealed. In the New Testament, it says, we boldly enter into the most holy place. That is what she has done. We are now boldly entering in. And because she knows she has seen the favor of her king, that gives her the confidence to be able to be like that. Romans 10.33 says this, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And the answer is kind of, you know, uh, nobody better <laughs> Because if you go against those whom God has chosen, God is going to go against you. And that is what we're seeing here. It is God who justifies, it continues to say there. Who is he that condemns? No one. No one can condemn you outside of Christ Jesus. That's interesting. Now again, that can be interpreted wrong. It doesn't mean that we are not to hold one another accountable. What he's saying is this, is that as it says also in Romans, to his own master he will stand or fall. 
that we stand before God. He is our judge. And when it comes to salvation, that's the final call. It doesn't matter what Matt thinks of me. What matters is what God thinks of me. In Revelation 6, verse 14, we see kind of a parallel here. That when judgment comes, the rulers, the ungodly, are going to be terrified. Judgment is about to be hung or hang, hung, uh, handed down, is what I'm looking for, handed down to Haman here, who's about to be hung, and he is absolutely terrified even before it happens because he knows judgment is coming. Here it says, The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So the wicked are going to respond in fear someday. And they're going to try and hide from God. And that's what we're going to see. Haman, in essence, that's what he's trying to do. He realizes that his fate has been sealed, so he falls at the feet of Esther, hoping that she can save him from the face of the one who will bring the wrath. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 8 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. This verse has always fascinated me because it's an image that kind of gets in my mind of looking at somebody and all of a sudden seeing their face spontaneously combust. I'd be like, <gasps> you know, and that's the picture that I see here. That's what Haman is thinking right now. I mean, he is terrified. Like, pee your pants terrified. <laughs> God is coming in vengeance, and the reason he's going to come with vengeance is because he's defending his bride and that is why we see that King Ahasuerus is so mad. This has been a, an attack on his bride. So I cannot imagine the wrath of God. It's one thing to talk about the wrath of God, read about the wrath of God, but I don't think any of us can imagine what it's going to be like. I mean, if I saw some kid beaten up, my kid, oh, you're going to see, and I don't even think that comes close to when God comes back, it is with this kind of jealous anger. And we can't comprehend it. No wonder they are going to be terrified, even begging the rocks to fall on them. Because you will be terrified. Yeah. Yeah, scary thing. Anyway, back to Esther, verse 7. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther 
for his life. And so we kind of talked about that outside of the fact when God comes in the book of Revelation, we see that God stands up. When judgment is about to come, God will rise up from his throne. Sometimes in my prayer, I've been the last year and a half or so, just been praising, Lord, just rise up. Extend your right hand. Move on our behalf. And that's just kind of the picture that I see. You see, he's seated on his throne. He's the ruler. He's the judge. He's going to take his judgment seat, but he stands up. And that's another kind of cool verse that is in Acts chapter 7, we see that when Stephen is stoned. When Stephen is stoned, it says that God, if I'm remembering right here, he, he stands up, he rises up. It's almost like a welcome to him. You know? Numbers 24, verse 1, uh, just to kind of take you back as another kind of parallel here, if you remember Balaam. Uh, Balaam was an ungodly prophet. He was not a prophet of God, but God used him. And it says, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as at other times, but turned his face toward the wilderness. The Spirit of God came on him, and he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling place, Israel. It goes on here. Um, water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Now, this prophecy, remember where Haman comes from. Haman comes from Agag from that line. He's an Agagite. Their kingdom will be exalted. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. That's Yeshua. Here is this ungodly guy, a, a false prophet, that God is using and he says, I see, I see him, but he's not now. I, I behold him. I think he really got to see Jesus. And he's the prophet that like, could not curse the Israelites, right? Yeah, he, like, yeah. He just was not physically able to curse them well, like the king wanted. it seemed to be that way. I mean, at least he knew if I do, I'm dead. Yeah. So. And this is not a... Yeah, yeah. He, he was into divination. He was into, you know, many gods, basically. So the true God, Elohim, was just one of many for him. And what he ends up doing is giving uh, Balak some bad advice. Well, as far as Balaam was concerned, it was good advice in the sense, go get your women and go get Israel to curse themselves by letting them sleep with your women, and then they'll curse themselves. Since I can't do it, then they will. And then, like two or three chapters later, we see that Israel goes to war and they kill Balaam. Balaam is going to pay for that. He goes on, Edom will be conquered, Seir his enemy will be conquered, but Israel will go, grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Then Balaam saw Amalek and spoke this message, 
Amalek was first among the nations, but their end will be utter destruction. That's exactly what happened to the people of Agag or the Amalekites and whatnot. He says they, he was raised up, Haman was raised up, but his end was going to be utter destruction. Um, ultimately, some say that this was then fulfilled, this prophecy was fulfilled in the book of Esther because this puts an end to that line when Haman is killed, Haman and his sons. And so here's this prophecy, seemingly absolutely unrelated to the book of Esther, but then that line being wiped out here in Esther would fulfill it. Luke 13, verse 28 says this, There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. We hear this all the time. I've used it many times myself, you know, when it comes to the line of the buffet. All right, the last will be first, the first will be last. That has nothing to do with the context of this verse. It's not about who gets to eat food first and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Notice what it said there in Numbers. Amalek was first among the nations, but their end will be utter destruction. We're talking about salvation here. It's saying that the first will be lost to salvation. And that's the context of, of judgment and salvation that Luke is talking about here. If you look at it, weeping and gnashing of teeth... Um, notice as well that the people will come from all directions to take their place at the feast of the kingdom of God. And it's at that feast that somebody is thrown out. That's what's happening here with Haman. This is a feast that has been prepared. And Haman is going to have the wrong clothes on. And he is cast out. He was first, but he's going to be last. And we'll go and see Matthew 22 here in a minute, but that whole clothing aspect of being righteousness. Esther 7.8 says, Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So this word falling is kind of a play on words when you see it in the, the language there, the original language, because remember what his wife Zeresh had just told him? Because Haman, your enemy is a Jew, before whom your, your fall has begun. And here he falls, literally, at the feet of Esther, begging for his life. the authority that this king has, as soon as the words left his mouth. I mean, you can just see that the servants were there just ready to just grab him. And that's the kind of authority that God has. Let me tell you, when God gives the word for the end to come, it will come upon you quickly. 
There isn't going to be this slow waiting around. It will be boom. Well, going back to that parable in Matthew that seems to be right out of Esther. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets, gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Isn't that interesting that all the people that were invited were good and bad? So there's all kinds of bad people that are invited, but only one that doesn't have the wedding clothes. I think, at least me, I kind of look at it this way. There are those who are, you know, those good Christians and those that are going to make it by the skin of their teeth that 1 Corinthians 3 talks about. Those that know Jesus as their Savior but have built upon that with wood, hay, and stubble. But then there's this guy. He's not wearing wedding clothes at all. He asks, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? Now, that word friend is also interesting. In the Greek, that word is unique. It's not, it's not the normal word that you would use for a friend. It's the exact same word that when Judas is betraying Jesus, he, say, he gives him a kiss. He says, you know, go, friend, go do what you have to do kind of thing. Same word that's used there, here. It continues and says the man was speechless, terrified basically. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And so here we see just as Haman was bound and taken off to darkness, into the darkness, and he's going to be hung. Verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands at Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke, spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So there's irony. The very gallows that Haman built is the very thing that will kill him. In essence, we see the law of God being fulfilled here as well. God's word is the same yesterday, today, and always. And what I mean by the law being played out and fulfilled here is this. Look at Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law in the prophets. What you do is what you're going to get. That sums up the law, he's saying. Where does that come from in the law? Deuteronomy 19 says, if a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. So even what Haman was doing, this fulfilled the law. By, well, what you intended to do to him, that's what's going to happen to you. So he experienced the full effect of Torah there.
Psalm 37.12, kind of close out with this verse, says this, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Right now, the wicked are scheming. And I, I believe with this whole COVID stuff, the wicked are scheming. But the Lord is in control. Just as he was in the situation here with Haman. The Lord is actually the one that's scheming and planning and knows. And the wicked may think they're getting away with things, but they're not. And I hope that if any wicked people hear this and they think that they're getting away and, and God does not see what they do, that they take this to heart because their day is coming. And they can kill us if they want. That doesn't matter. But when God comes for them, there is the worm that never dies, the fire that is never going to go out, the thirst that is never quenched, and I can't even fathom. The wicked in God's justness is something that, in reading through these scriptures this week, has been something that I was talking with Noah about earlier today. It's, it, it fascinates me. God is a just God, and we see godly men like David, Solomon, virtually all of them, doing things that if we would do today, you would be like, you're not even a Christian. But yet God considered it holy. David, we see, there's two things here, oaths play into this. When you take an oath, those oaths are forever which is why God says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Because we see that when Jericho was conquered, Joshua said, cursed is the man, whoever rebuilds this place, you know, at the, when they uh, lay the foundation, their oldest or youngest son was going to die. And when they set up its gates, then the other one was going to die. Well, 400 plus years later, we see uh, King Ahab, I think it was, builds this, Jericho back up, loses his first son and his last son. It's been years. Well, when they were coming into the promised land, there was these people called the Gibeonites who pretended to be from a far-off country because they knew God had said, we're going to destroy this land. So they come in and say, oh, you know, we're strangers from foreigners. Look at our bread. It's all moldy and all of this kind of thing. And I'm sure that's exactly how they sounded. And he, they go... They didn't consult to, with God, and so as a result, they made a treaty that they wouldn't kill him. Well, then they find out, oh, they live right there. Now, in my mind, I think, ah, it was an old, I mean, you know, that doesn't count. You lied. Nope. It stood. It was an oath before God. It stood. So they made them woodcutters and water bearers for Israel. Fast forward 500 years. Saul is king, and, well, he starts killing them because he's zealous for Judah and Israel, is how Scripture says it. And you think, well, that's a good thing. He was zealous for Israel. He was zealous for Judah. But he wasn't zealous for God. 
There's a lot of people like that today that are zealous for Israel, but not zealous for God. Well, David becomes king. There's a famine. And David's like, what's going on? We need to consult God. They go and consult God, and God says it's on account of what Saul did when he killed the Gibeonites. That oath from 500 years earlier, David is suffering the consequences of it. You go, wow. If that doesn't want to make you be careful about what you say, the oaths. You know, this is why you let your yes be yes, your no, no. But you don't swear by heaven. Because if you do, it's going to stand. So those words are not to be taken lightly. And I think Bree was here when I was telling this to our family. But I, so sorry you're hearing this again. But I had to apologize to my wife. And I prayed I was listening to this, and I thought, ah, oh, and it came to my mind. I remember an oath that I said when I was kind of mad at her because I was doing ministry, and she was, I'm going to still say in the wrong, but... I stand by She was in the wrong. She was interrupting and wanted me to go, and I was in the middle of the prayer, and I would just... I was mad, and I, I said, if you ever do that again, I said, may the Lord deal with you ever so severely if you ever do that again. Yeah, I know. And I just thought, I cursed my wife. Well, you got terrified. Yeah, I got terrified. <laughs> yeah. I told her that, and I'm like, it's going to catch on. <laughs> yeah. So I... Um, I just I had to pray and say, God, I don't let that stand. I, I'm sorry. I should have never. What I should have prayed is, Lord, let her see. Let her see that she was wrong. Okay. Let her see, though. You know, pray mercy on her, because that's what we all need, and you know, none of us deserve. But. I, I did. I have to pray, wow, those vows, we have to watch the words we say because that is not. So, back on track, we see that Saul, or David is told it's because Saul killed them, that vow. And so David goes and says, all right, what should I do? And he goes to the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites say, well, we can't wipe them out or something, I don't remember, but he says, give us seven of Saul's sons. Some, seven of his relatives. And so he spares Mephibosheth because David had taken an oath with Jonathan. And they take these people and kill them. Lay them out on this rock and one of their mothers, Rizpah, sits there crying and won't allow the birds to come and get her son for days. And you look at this and your heart just is ripped out for Rizpah. And you're thinking... This was all considered righteous. This was all considered what God told David or allowed David to do that got rid of the famine. Those are the things that you read in Scripture. They're like, wow. You know, and then we go and we see later Solomon. He tells Shimei, hey, the day you leave Jerusalem, you're going to die. You know, and he one day, three years later, takes off, comes back, and he says, hey, come on, you're going to die now. Why? Just because I left town. Well, you said it, you know. So, boom. David kills another guy just because he said that, you know, Saul was on the mountain, and Saul told him to kill him, and here's his crown, and 
You know, the guy must have been lying, it seems. But David just kills him. And I was asking Noah, and I don't have an answer for this, but I was asking Noah, is it because he's a king? Or because before he was king, when he was just he was the head, the authority, that he could do those things and those were considered righteous? But all of those things were just. And it makes, us, it, it makes me think, do we have a proper concept of justice in Christianity today or not? Because God takes it very seriously. When we live our day-to-day lives where we are sinning here and there and some big ones there and a lot of little ones here and there, we don't, we don't think of those as any real big deal. But with a God who is that, who sees justice and truth, that black and white, that ought to make us realize how serious our sin is and be that much more thankful that we have the mercy and grace of God because he does not take these things lightly at all. We might, but he doesn't. Justice is us dying because we have broken God's commands. Mercy is God putting that justice on his son. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The wicked can come after us, but because we have been justified by Christ, we don't have to worry about the wicked plotting against us about what's going on in this world with COVID and all these other things. We don't have to worry because God is on our side because he has justified us. But anyway, um, those were just some, some of my little thoughts. Any other thoughts or questions before we close? Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you again for being our king and watching over and protecting us. We pray that you would stand up, that you would defend us. And that you would empower us and give us a memory and a love for your word that we might go and share the good news with others, Father, because we do not want to see people perish either. So give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for those who do not know the truth and that our eyes would be taken off of the things of this world, that it would grow dim and that we instead would just have eyes for you and the kingdom of God and the things that you desire. Help us to be pleasing to you with our thoughts, with our actions, and with our words. May we bring glory to you, and may you be honored. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, we pray. Amen.